Sue always felt thirsty. Uh, she, an attractive woman, very intelligent. She kept getting promoted in her work. And um, she used to go home at night and just uh, have a glass of wine just to unwind from the stresses of her day. But as time went on, the glass of wine became half a bottle of wine and it became a full bottle of wine every night. And there were some work functions and parties where she really let herself down. And uh, she got into some very compromising situations. She found herself at times waking up in a stranger's bed. And after sobering up, she would say to herself, I am never drinking again. But a few days would go by, and she would just feel so thirsty. And there would be a voice in her head saying, go on, you deserve it. You work hard. Just have one glass. It'll be okay. Lance was a big success as a cyclist, but the, he knew the only way he could win the Tour de France was by doping, taking banned drugs. Uh, it was an open secret that no one admitted, uh, but you had to take him to win. And the more he won, the more famous he became, and the more lucrative his brand name became. Um, he overcame cancer, and uh, he had to keep winning. He had to keep, keep, uh, keep himself as a brand name that would provide inspiration for others. All he had to do was to keep lying, keep bribing, keep threatening, and keep doping. He was Lance Armstrong. He was invincible. He was proud of his achievements. And he was in too deep to let the truth come out. Keith was a trader uh, at a major bank when he realized that his uh, new group that he moved into were, in, were manipulating the uh, LIBOR bank lending rate. Um, they were making more profits for the bank, which was needed because of all the debts they'd had in the past. He went to his supervisor and raised his concern about this behavior. And his supervisor sat him down and told him, it's okay, lots of banks are doing this. This is quite widespread. Uh, and shared with Keith about how he, uh, those higher up had been really impressed with Keith's performance. And in fact, there were big plans for Keith. There was a big promotion uh, coming up where he would have uh, increased bonuses, uh, stock options. Keith pictured the country estate and the garage full of supercars and he smiled and went back to his desk. Three stories of people addicted to sin, enslaved to sin, day by day just giving way to temptations to, to lie, to steal, to fornicate, to cheat as they worship other things instead of the God who made them. Just a few rotten apples? No. They're illustrations of our inherited human condition. The truth is that we are all 
people with rotten cores. Surrounded by a beautiful garden, Adam and Eve uh, were given a, uh, a simple command not to eat the fruit of one tree. There they were surrounded by uh, an amazing abundance of beautiful, fruitful trees that they could have legitimately taken any fruit from any of those trees. There was only one tree they couldn't take it from. And into that paradise came a supernatural being, uh, an angel in rebellion against God who hissed doubt into their minds and uh, said, Did God really say? You will not surely die. You will be like God. From that first moment of human history, Satan has always been whispering uh, doubt into our ears about the words of God, doubting the goodness of God. And despite all the abundance of what they could have taken, they succumbed to Satan's temptation and they disobeyed God. Let's think about it. It's not so much whether it was an apple or whatever it was. The point was that they took the fruit that they should not have taken. And that act of of self-assertion was basically saying, actually, God's not going to determine what's right and wrong. I'm going to determine what's right and wrong. Their disobedience showed that they didn't love and worship God alone. They knew better than God. But of course, Satan deceived them. They were cast out of the garden. They were separated from God by their sin. They did experience a sin-cursed world. We have a messed up world because of that rebellion. And their corruption was passed on to their children. Think about this. Their first beautiful baby boy was a murderer. The first murderer murdering his younger brother. The sin got passed on. And subsequent generations on, violence and corruption have passed to all who are Adam's descendants. We are all enslaved to sin. We're all rotten apples. Now what hope is there for us? What hope is there for for Sue and Lance and Keith? And what hope is there for us? And we read on in the the Old Testament and you'll see uh, very much a, a history of ugly sin. Uh, blighted lives, pain and suffering, and that's even amongst those who knew God in a special way. God acted to free the descendants of Abraham from from slavery, and uh, they wandered for 40 years in the desert, largely because they kept disobeying God's word. They kept rejecting God's word. They didn't listen to what God had to say. So last week, we... We looked at chapter 3, and we saw John the Baptist. And, and, and look at chapter 3, verse, um, verse 2. This is what he was shouting out in the desert of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That makes sense with all that background, doesn't it? We are sinful, rotten people who keep rejecting God and his word. And he says, God's kingdom is coming. The, the, the kingdom of heaven is near. So how do you need to respond if you're a human being? Repent. You need to repent. God is coming. We're sinners. A holy God is coming. We need to repent. We've got a sin problem that needs to be dealt with. And they showed that, verse 5. I mean, crowds of people got it. Verse 5, they, they, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sin they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So as they come to be baptized in the river, they, they, they're saying, yes, we're sinners. They're confessing their sins. 
They're being baptized by John. They want to get ready for the one that John was, was pointing to, the one who would be greater than them, than John, the one who was more powerful, the one who baptized not just in water, but in the Holy Spirit. That's the scene. Now, look at the shock of what happens next. Let's read this section from Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This is God's words. Keep it open. So what's the great shock here? You know, after John's message, it's to see Jesus come to be baptized by John. Isn't that the great shock? What's going on here? Isn't this a baptism for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sin? Is, is, is he a sinner just like the rest of us? What is Jesus doing getting baptized? It's an important question. I mean, John himself tries to stop him, doesn't he? Verse 14, he tries to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus was the powerful one. He was uh, the worthy one, the sinless one. He was the one who came to baptize uh, in the Spirit, not just simply in water. And that's why John says to him, I need to be baptized by you. So John protests, but Jesus tells him it is proper. Verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? He's come to fulfill 
all righteousness. Well, I want to suggest to you it means this. In every way that we have failed to live up to God's righteous standards through our disobedience, Jesus came to fulfill and keep those standards by his perfect obedience. He would completely keep all of God's uh, demands of holiness. Jesus would always do the right thing where we find ourselves doing the wrong thing because of our corruption to sin. He had come to fulfill all righteousness. Now just keep that phrase in mind as we look at the baptism. This is not an ordinary baptism, is it? I don't know how many baptisms you've witnessed down here. I've seen, I've seen hundreds in my lifetime. I've never seen anything like this. Anyone seen anything like this? No. Never seen anything like this. Verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is a unique baptism because Jesus is a totally unique person. This didn't happen at your baptism because you're not like Jesus. And to understand what is going on here, we kind of need to know our Old Testament. Because what this is showing us is that this is the servant king. Let's think about the the spirit descending on him like a dove. Uh, Let's go back to our Old Testament reading. Keep your finger in Matthew and come back to Isaiah 42. Page 727. So 800 years before Jesus, Isaiah 42, and this is what Isaiah prophesies. There's a servant coming, special servant. The answer to the world's problems are going to be found in this special servant. 42 verse 1, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And he will bring justice to the nations. God is going to put his Holy Spirit on this special servant. You can read on in Isaiah. You're going to see there's more prophecies about this servant. In chapter 49, you're going to discover that this servant is not just there to help his people Israel. He's there to help the whole nations. It says of that servant, he'll be a light for the nations, bringing God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Go on to Isaiah chapter 53 and you're going to discover that this servant is going to end up looking so disfigured and rejected in his lifetime because he's going to be punished for people's sins. Here's the answer to the world's problem of sin. It is the spirit-anointed king. So back, back to chapter 3 of Matthew. Let's think about the voice. Uh, as, as politicians uh, seek to get people's endorsements, you can't really get a better endorsement than this. Jesus is directly endorsed by God as God's king of God's kingdom. When when he says, this is my son whom I love, he's actually, God himself is quoting Psalm 2. 
in, in the Old Testament, uh, the Son of God phrase was, was used at times to refer to the kings of Israel. So in Psalm 2, uh, God says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And God speaks to the king saying this, you are my son. But without exception, from uh, Saul, the first king, all the way through, every one of the kings of Israel was a complete washout, a complete failure because they were moral failures. But here is a king who is different. Here is a king with no sin. Look at those words. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased, says God. There is nothing displeasing in this one who stands in, in, in the waters of the river Jordan. Heaven opens to declare it. The spirit comes. This is the servant king. The servant king without sin. Do you see what is going on in this baptism? Can you picture this scene in your eyes? Here is the one who is everything we could never be. See, last week we saw basically the message of John was, repent, you're everything you ought not to be. And then the wonder of this baptism is looking at Jesus in the River Jordan. We're hearing this. Look, he's everything you could never be. I want to say to you, here is the only hope for sinners in this world. He's the only hope for Sue, for Lance, for Keith, for me, for you. Why is Jesus the sinless one in whom God is well pleased? Why is he being baptized? And, and I think this gets to the very heart of the good news. Right at the start of his public ministry, Jesus comes to identify with us. He is standing in the place of sinners. Who, everybody else who'd been in those waters up to that point were sinners. They knew they were sinners. They were declaring they're sinners. Jesus comes and he stands in the place of sinners. And he says it is proper, it is right to fulfill all righteousness. The declaration of heaven is clear. He is a sinless one. Why is he there? He is there to identify with us sinners. He is there taking on the mantle. He is taking on the responsibility that he is going to stand in the place of sinners hung upon a cross at the end of his public ministry. He is going to die like a sinner in the place of sinners. He has come to fulfill all righteousness for us. For us. Andy was dead right at the start of this service. If, you, if you've come to church today and you don't know much about Christianity, you're thinking, oh, these people come here and they're trying to get some brownie points, some merit points to make themselves acceptable to God. Completely wrong. A Christian is someone who has come to the realization that they are totally unworthy, that they are a sinner. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right before God. And the reason that we sing so much about Jesus is that he had come to fulfill all righteousness for us. That's why we talk about him. A friend of mine went to a school where the teacher kept control of uh, the class by recording the faults of all his students. 
Guys are in school right now. You, you don't know, that you're, you know how good it is. Back in my day, there was a stick. And you'd get beaten with that stick. The good old days. Well, my friend was at such a school. And uh, basically, he recorded all the faults of his students. Each student had a separate book. Um, every time any of them basically uh, were rude, were late, were talked back, or were generally disruptive, a black mark went into the book. Four black marks, detention. Six black marks, the cane. My friend was a high-energy kid. And he says he gained many black marks. However, there was a girl who sat behind him. And she was no angel outside the classroom, but when it came to the classroom, she never put a foot wrong, and he hatched a plot. Maybe you could sneak into that classroom where no one was there and get her book and rub her name out and write his name on the front. Take his book, rub his name out, and put her name on it. And if his plan had worked, he would have had all his past record of wrong wiped away. Because his own demerits were now accounted to her. It would have been awfully sneaky. It didn't work, by the way. And you see, as Jesus comes forward to be baptized by John, he is willingly offering his sinless record to be counted in the place of our sinful record. He is willingly coming to do this. In every way that we have done wrong, he came to do what was right. He came to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Do you understand this? This is the most wonderful thing. This is the most crucial thing to understand about Christianity. He came to save his people from their sins in his death upon the cross. But here's the point. He could only do so if he continued to live a righteous life. And that's what the drama is as we go into chapter 4. This confrontation with Satan. Adam and Eve stood in sinless perfection in the garden. But Satan hissed in their ears and they disobeyed God's word and fell. Well, here's a sinless one. No sooner is he declared to be the anointed king that uh, the spirit leads him out to be tested by Satan. And, and uh, you know, I don't know whether you like superhero movies, but when superheroes come and fight, it's all about punching and fighting and lasers and zapping and power, isn't it? Apparently, I, I don't watch them myself. But that's, this is not a contest like that, is it? What's being tested here is, is Righteousness. Will this spirit-filled king, will he remain righteous? Will he obey God's word? It's a test of character of Jesus, the Son of God. Three temptations laid out by Satan to stir Jesus to act in an unrighteous and self-serving way. But in each one, Jesus quotes the Old Testament scriptures, as we said earlier in the service, as the final authority And he chooses to reject the temptation and instead obey God's words. 
Now, while this section may well have some lessons to teach us about dealing with temptation, it's not what it's primarily about. The, the focus of our attention is upon this one. The most important thing you need to see in these verses is that he passes the test so that he can be our all-sufficient Savior. He, he, it's his perfect righteousness that we see here. And you see, for Sue, enslaved uh, to her thirst for alcohol, the great encouragement is that there is a Savior who hungered in the desert but refused to live just to satisfy his own desires and craving. Instead, he recalls and perfectly obeys God's word, and he remains righteous so that he can be her perfect substitute and pay for all of her sin. She can be completely forgiven because the righteous one has fulfilled all righteousness for her. And for Lance, so focused uh, in boasting about his false achievements, an obsessed narcissist by his own words, he needs to know that there's a savior who could have proved to uh, everyone uh, of his heavenly origin by forcing the angels to do some spectacular, uh, you know, dive to pick him up if he threw himself off the, the temple. But he rejected that and instead chose the way of humility even embracing the reality of his humiliation and suffering and spitting and scourging and beating. Here is the one who rejected the opportunity to make it big, make a big show and choose instead the way of the cross. Here was one who refused to be an attention grabber so that his righteousness could perfectly stand in the place to forgive all the ego self proclaiming sin of Lance Armstrong. For Keith, who uh, succumbed to the peer pressure and bowed his knee to the plan of his dishonest boss for all the promise of more bonus, he needs to know that there is a savior who refused the splendor of the kingdoms of the world. He refused it because he saw that the cost was to divert his worship from serving his heavenly father to bowing the knee to Satan. Here is a savior who does not maximize the perks of wealth and comfort, but instead chose the costly obedience and suffering and death of the cross to bring in the kingdom so that people like Keith could have their sins completely forgiven. Here's the glorious good news. I don't know whether you, you realize you're a sinner. If you don't realize you're a sinner, you're probably horrified. You think, these people, who are these people? But if you realize that you're a sinner, here's great news. Great news for all who will repent and realize that they're everything they ought not to be. Look to the one who's everything that you could never be because he's standing in, in, in the waters of Jordan being baptized and proclaiming that he's standing there to fulfill all righteousness for you if you'll put your trust in him. His perfect record will stand in your place as a guilty sinner because he takes your sinful, guilty record and he 
takes it upon himself upon the cross and God poured out his wrath on him when it deserved to be on me. Can I just say to all of us here, look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Find your hope in Christ. When Satan whispers into your ear that you're a failure and that you're useless and you're not much of a Christian and look how much you fail, hide yourself in Christ. He is my righteousness. He is my holiness. He is my redemption. He is my savior. He's the one I want to sing about. He's the one I want to boast about because he is my savior. The son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. It's the best news. Are you trusting Christ? You can do it today, you know. I'll be happy to help you pray and think it through, but you don't need me. You simply need to turn to God in prayer, repent of of the sins that you're aware of in your life, and ask him to change you. Trust Christ as your savior. Come and let us know about it so we can help you. I'm going to finish with uh, this great hymn. It is amazing to us that the glorious Son of God becomes the man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah! What a Savior! Bearing shame and scoffing, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior.